0: We're halfway through the Eightfold Path. Actually, you're never through the Eightfold Path. <laughs> so, but uh, in terms of the classes, we are rounding four and heading to five, the fifth step. And, uh, but I wanna just briefly uh, talk a little bit about uh, the first four steps and how they relate to this fifth and very meaningful step, Right Livelihood. It's hard, it's hard to read virtually anything that the Buddha writes in which he doesn't, um, when asked, uh, that he doesn't structure it within right view. It's so obvious that right view leads all the other steps. And as I've mentioned again and again and again, unless we have the understanding of that there's another bank, that there is a different way to live, that life as we normally perceive it is insufficient for the most part, and that there's a deeper and more fundamental truth that underlies reality than the one that we normally live by, then everything else falls flat. The house tumbles, and there isn't any other step to move to. If we move out of wrong view, we move into a kind of a moralism, toward sort of being a good person, uh, improving our disposition, our character, our personality, refining our uh, sense of of humility, and doing things that we're sort of juggling personality traits. Or we might just wanna be good people. Not that those aspirations aren't noble with a small n (laughs) but they're not the noble aspirations with a capital N that are that are intimated in this eightfold path. For this path is really a direction towards something else that underlies our reality and intimates a sense of true and unconditional freedom. And it is towards that that the Eightfold Path moves and points, not towards just becoming better people. And you can always tell which way we're going, from right view or wrong view, to see if the ways that we are moving really are towards self-improvement. Or rather, they're rather they're towards connecting with life in a different kind of way. Now, sometimes those are in alignment with one another. Sometimes connecting, depending upon what we mean by self-improvement, sometimes connecting itself brings some advantages. Often it brings advantages. Often it brings a different sense of who we are and a and a. Um, uh, and to look at some of the difficulties that have always, we've lived with and um, but it's not about building a better self. It's really about something more fundamental than that and that is connecting with the world and seeing our self as part of that connectedness. So, um, right view is essential. And right view, of course, does nothing unless we have the intention or the aspiration to continue to move towards a deeper understanding of what life is about, which is the second step in the Eightfold Path, right aspiration or right intention, sometimes right attitude, although I think that's a little broad. And then we, which is the formation of a kind of a thought, isn't it? To have an aspiration is the first impulse that we have towards an action. And then the un- April path moves into the different uh, facets of our activity. Speech, action from body, and then a much greater step, which is sort of how we spend most of the day, action and livelihood, which is a, a series of incremental actions that have a broader scope of how we focus and use the day. And it's towards that that this talk is about. But before I get that, I'd like to just talk a little bit about action because uh, this weekend um, I went to uh, the Oregon State Penitentiary. I've never been in a penitentiary before. It was an interesting. It was an interesting activity. First of all, when I got there the woman forgot to tell me that you can't wear blue jeans because all the inmates wear blue jeans and I was wearing blue jeans. So they dashed me off into a closet where they make me put on sweatpants. Unfortunately, the sweatpants were about five sizes too small and they came up to about mid-calf. Now here I am walking with a plaid shirt. Sweatpants that look like I borrowed them from my wife into the most macho scene, hearing cat calls and whistles. I said, just keep right view, keep right view. So I put up with endless. Jokes about my dress, and then finally we met in this room, and there were uh, there about 18 of us in the room. And before we got started, I just talked to the woman beside me, who is the um, chaplain there, and I uh, just said, like, what would these people have done? (laughs) She said, "Oh, 11 or 12 of them are murderers." And the rest of them would have done some aggravated assault like armed robbery or rape or something. So, I kept going in and out. I mean, I, you, you know, you try to get over projections. <laughs> but you're sitting with, the, and, and, you just, and you're working in this way with a group of people. Unless I was fooled, and I'm not saying that's impossible, but for the most part they're very sincere people. And not only were they sincere, they were coming voluntarily to this meeting, not to the prison, but to this <laughs> meeting. And they were really interested. We—I did a morning of hospice work and an afternoon of Buddhism, not to the same groups of people. And we sat around, and they were real. They really were looking towards self-improvement. And she, later, I found that most of those people in the room had committed a a single act of violence in their life. Perhaps they were young, 18, one person was uh, 18 years old when he had committed this murder. He had um, been under drugs or something and killed someone. Uh, 13 years later, he's still there, he's 31 now, and he um, will be there for another 20 or 30 years because of that single act. And as the morning wore on, it was real interesting to me that I lost the initial jolt of having to sit in a group of murderers. And they really became human beings in a way that was very connecting. I was able to let go of what they had done and what they had been. That single act, that single action defined their life. Now here's somebody, 18 years old, one of the people, I, I had never done anything wrong, never been into trouble, had been committed a murder, and then while he was in jail waiting his trial, he was 18 years old, while he was in jail waiting his trial, they brought him his homework because he was in, a senior in high school, and he graduated valedictorian of his class. And he gets a 30-year sentence, and that's just before he doesn't get. He gets a life sentence, but in 30 years he's eligible for parole. And the, you know, she said it'll be another 10 years after that before he ever gets it. A single act, a single movement, mismovement, defined that person's life. So here I was, undefining it. I was really meeting these people as genuine human beings. And I thought, this is it. This is the view. This is because it, it was, we were all in the room together connecting around something that was very important to all of us. And no longer was their past the definition of who they were, but the immediacy of this moment. Human beings. No, it was, it was a it was a transforming experience for me as well. But it was view. It was just working with that, not letting one's immediate impressions define the relationship. You see, looking for that sense of connectedness, and not and the aspiration is not allowing the grayness that covers the eyes to define. You know the the. The coloration. Oh, God, wait No. You know, you just keep... You don't allow that to set the tone of the meeting. You don't allow it. You can't. And that's the aspiration and the effort. And we'll talk about that next week. And then the speech comes from that sense of connectedness. And the actions come from that sense of connectedness. But one thing it definitely impressed upon me was our need to be very aware of our actions. Many of us have a whole life time in which we can point two or three events perhaps which have set a particular relationship uh, on course that has never changed because of an unskillful action we've done. Something we did in the past, something that occurred, and defines our life or, or at least is a bump in the road towards a quieter and more peaceful life. And to stay aware is the only skill we have, the only tool we have towards watching that need to for an impulse of react, reaction towards an unskillful action. So right action. Now we come to livelihood and may I say I know many. some people in here aren't working, some people are mothers who are working, some people are people who go off to work somewhere else. We have a whole array of, um, of the scale of what we talk about when we talk about livelihood so i don't want to confine this to a work experience in the traditional sense of the word 8 hours off somewhere doing something at a factory but rather where what it is that defines the majority of our day what actions around what is that defined if it's a mother hopefully it's something with your children and you can see how important this is i mean the Buddha, in his wisdom, didn't bypass livelihood, but really made it a central issue because it defines at least a third of our work week. Now, if one third of our life doesn't feed the other two thirds, what are we doing? we're really, and I say this gently, prostituting ourselves. Because we're trying, we're willing to give forth, give over eight hours to get money enough so that we can fund the other two-thirds of our life. And that's not sufficient for a Buddhist meditator for somebody who wants to come to a deeper sense of understanding and align themselves. That's that's not doesn't work that way. We have to bring all of this together, certainly that huge chunk. In Pali, there's a word called there's a word, kusala, kusala, and it means what is helpful and wholesome, and it's applied often to right livelihood, and whatever empowers an individual or group to discover and transcend their physical, psychological, and spiritual suffering and does no harm to oneself or others in the process." I like that. So work In the sense of that is towards the benefit of myself and others. It has at its base non-harm. Non-harm. A kusala, the opposite of kusala, anything which blocks an individual from discovering why he suffers or adds ignorance, anger, and addiction to the general population. kusala and akusala. So what does work mean to us? We often spend as much or more time at work than we do with our families. If you think about it. And sometimes work is a way to not go home, to keep from going home, isn't it? And unless the two halves, the family half, our private lives and our work life, are in alignment, they can be used as a kind of block or an impenetrable wall from one another. Seeking work, staying over at work, so that I don't have to face some of the difficulties at home. Or conversely, using all of our sick leave and our vacation time every single year so that I don't have to spend as much time at work. So how is it, what's work mean for us? And how is it that we want to live our lives on this earth? How is it that our life will be a statement of this connection, this connectedness that we hold as our view? How can we do that? We have to make a livelihood. And the Buddha was interesting. I'll just uh, read I didn't bring my glasses, which is always a mistake, but a balanced livelihood, herein a householder knowing his income and expenses leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly, miserly, knowing that this is his income, that thus his income will stand in excess of his expenses but not his expenses in excess of his income. Right? (laughs) you got to make more than you spend. And he looks at it. And a person, okay, you know, I've got to use my life and I've got to have money. Not in excess, not miserly. Not miserly, isn't that interesting? You see, not towards you, uh, to some sense of tightness and... but balanced, balanced. And what is like right livelihood, someone asked him. This is the case where having abandoned dishonest livelihood, one focuses in, through right intention and right view, on right livelihood. These five trades O monk ought not to be taken up by a lay follower trading weapons trading in living beings trading in meat that's an interesting one trading in intoxicants and trading in poisons. There's a whole list of wrong livelihood for contemplatives I won't but uh, some of them are reading omens and signs Signs, interpreting celestial events, <laughs> blood sacrifices, <laughs> laying demons in a secret- cemetery. I don't know what was going on back then. But... <laughs> anyway, charms and other things. Now, it's rare to meet someone, from my point of view, It seems rare to meet someone who has integrated their life and their work. One, as I mentioned, is often a form of escape from the other. It's also rare to meet someone who is doing what they really want to do, isn't it? I don't know how it is that we get in our livelihoods. I mean, each one of us have our own story that tells the tale of how you got to where you are now, how the choices were made but somehow, and it's often more by default than by intention, we find ourselves in a job that encompasses eight hours of our day at least. and We haven't taken that activity seriously enough to look at the profound changes that it will make on myself or the profound changes that my working with that intensity will have on life itself, we just sort of fall our, find ourselves in it most of us some of us really do connect with what we love to do but by and far that's by by far that's a rarity in my experience. Mostly we kind of begrudge the time kind of wishing that it was over when we we're there and you know, just sort of And yet, a call to right livelihood is really an alignment with the values of one's life non-harm, connecting, not only in the direction that that job takes in terms of what it produces. Right? I, I have a friend and uh, right out of college some 30 years ago he got involved in the tobacco industry. Tobacco, at that point, was not seen as a, and we would joke about it, you know. And it was just coming to, just coming um, up that it had some connection with heart disease and lung cancer and all that. But he thought that the evidence was so um, scarce and so uncertain that you know he could get involved in this. And he was a, he was a he was a good person. He is a good person, and he. He just decided that was the job and um, for him. He got a real lucrative offer. And he took the job. And I've touched base with him from time to time when I've gone back to my uh, home state, Ohio. And I've just... Sometimes I touch base with him when he also happens to be visiting there, usually at reunions and that kind of thing. And as the evidence mounts... I want, to touch, I want to find out where he's thinking. And he continues, see, because this is now his livelihood. He's continued the rationalization to such an extreme. Even now, as the tobacco producers are proclaiming that, yes, it is, nicotine is a drug, and, yes, it's harmful for your health, he continues to hold on to the fact that the evidence is sh- shaky, blah, blah, blah. And you can see how the livelihood at some point became so sharp and distasteful to him that he had to fall into denial. And he was unable to hear. Unable because he's just his whole life is around that particular livelihood, everything. And he can't leave it because of the insecurity it would leave in his departure. It's interesting, I mean what we get ourselves into and then how we accommodate and how we find ourselves just relinquishing both what really creates a sense of uh, passion in us. Perhaps early on in our livelihoods there was a sense of passion and connectedness with a job we were doing and then some way it gets kind of distorted or uh, we have other incentives that we get tied to like financial incentives or status or prestige and the passion becomes less of the focus and the other becomes more of the central reason that we become and we find ourselves bored but we find ourselves unable to get back to the passion and we also find ourselves unable to leave the job Now I know I should do it, I'm feeling bored but I just I can't leave it. Too much rides on this for me. And you get caught in this conditioning of what the mind and the mind begins to just change itself to fit what is more comfortable than what is more meaningful. And we just find ourselves just going towards the comfort towards the ease of life. Rather than staying on the sharp edge and having life feed us through its vocation. Which means sometimes you have to change your jobs. Or, case in point, sometimes you have to leave your job. Leaving the job is an interesting thing. I'll tell you. Because the mind doesn't stop doing what it was doing, I am finding, (laughs) <laughs> it, if it had a job full of worry and you're not working it continues to worry wonder if the roof needs repair basement crack uh, it just continues to find different things to worry about so it, begins, it becomes important for us to understand how the job is conditioning us doesn't it? What character are we developing during the job? Isn't that interesting? What character are we creating in the work we're doing? And remember, people die in character. Ultimately, we're going to be on the deathbed with what we're forming now if we continue to harden ourselves around that. A sobering yet very true statement. The other thing I'm finding is that activity itself is generated in the mind. If you spend the day... I was once a monk. I disrobed after about eight years of doing virtually nothing. If you talk about producing something in the material form. And then engaged in work and found it very, very difficult to gear my mind up to the kind of of conscious activity that has to be there in order to hold a job. Very difficult. Now I'm finding the reverse to be true. 16 years of having it run in a certain way taking myself out of work, and finding the mind doesn't stop doing. And that activity somehow defines, or what I've seen is that my activity, my mental activity, has somehow defined my worth in those 16 years. And that what I try to do is create something. Get some work done in order to feel accomplished for that day. You see, you see that? This is the same mind. Sixteen years ago, a mind that was disengaged from that kind of producing, got it became engaged. Alright? Now sixteen years later, it dis- it an engaged mind disengages. And the same problems. It wasn't, see, it's how we're in the meantime, what went on there? In the meantime, some of what happened was wrong view. Some of what crept in through that 16 years, even though I was working in hospice care now, see, this is within a field that's certainly... Within the hospice field, I defined my eight hours as getting certain tasks done, certain things accomplished, certain da, 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 like that. And so then I would leave at the end of the day and go, well, okay, you know, I got a lot done today. And then you would feel good or not so good depending upon how you assess what you did that day. So then you don't work anymore and you're not producing. And if suddenly your sense of self is hooked up to that list of activities, accomplished or not accomplished, it still still does that. It still generates that kind of which is reason why retirees have so much difficulty often. They continue to do. And so again, it throws us back onto right view. Is this about producing something? Is it about manufacturing? Is it about activity? Or is there something about non-doing that is connected to right view? Non-doing does not necessarily mean non-activity it means a different view of life in which the activities don't define the personhood the accomplishments the reputation the status the prestige of someone it's very subtle how that works but i'm i'm seeing it and I mean, this is after an enormous number of years of a quarter of century of meditation. So my guess is that most of us have this within our own, entrapped within our own consciousness. And so we just need to call forth right view. You know, gain, loss, fame, disrepute, having, not having, all of those. It's really not about that. Accomplishing, not accomplishing, whatever dyad you want to pick, that's wrong view. I've got to do this, I can't do that, this, you know, and very subtly it weaves its influence on us unless we stay very crisp, very intentional in our aspirations with right view. And our work is one of the most direct ways that we can see that. Look at our work life. Let our work life reveal how it is that we hold the world. How is it that we are holding the world in this moment? In, on this job? With this person? But right livelihood is not just about what manufacturing or what service is generating, what product is being generated, and whether we feel attuned in alignment with that product in terms of our own value system, that's part of it certainly, but also what the work environment is doing on us. How we as individuals are living and surviving and handling the work environment. Because it can be a job that's in aligned with the spirit of Dharma but working against you as an individual. Like I was a substitute teacher one time in inner city Columbus back in 1970 72 or something and I would go into that work as a substitute teacher, they'd call me when people were out into inner city schools. And at that time, and I don't know what they're like now, but the inner city schools were hell realms. And I would go into a class, and they would just, these are uh, junior high kids that I was, with. <laughs> people understand that age, and you know. would come, would just, I mean, I, all I could do was put my body in front of the door, and that was the class. And they would come up, and they would, oh, it was just, oh, and then I would I would get my $20 for the day, which is what they were paying, and I'd go home, and I'd go, my God. But I was paying my way through graduate school at that time, so I had to have work, and this was, oh. Now, Well, I mean, it definitely scarred me. And uh, I just, you know, I'd come home just like shaking. So even though you can say school teaching is certainly right livelihood, it wasn't right livelihood for me because I wasn't able to handle whatever, I just couldn't do it in a way that was at all a good, decent fit. So it's not, the question is not solely whether what you're doing is harmonious with life and feels useful and not harmful, but rather how about internally? How about what's happening with you and me on that job? You know? Because a job like that if it, it has its effect not only on ourselves when we're at work, but when we come home. It can create enormous problems with our family because we carry that kind of tension with ourselves. You know, if you, if you just worry all the time, you're just tense. Then you come home, what are we like? You don't tell me you can just dissipate that intention. I know the mind better than that. You can't just let it go. That stuff carries with you, and if it doesn't carry with you in activity, it carries with you in dreams. And we just want to ask, what are we doing to ourselves here, you know? What what, what person am I forming? If you took who you were, are now, and you put yourself in the job that you're doing, give your, and then look at what you're becoming, and give yourself however many years you think that your lifespan has, 20, 30, 40 years, what comes out that door at the end of 40 years? Now what are you going to show for your life when you die except how you come out that door? (laughs) And we think it's about all the things we did in those 20, 30, 40 years. It's about that only in relationship to the quality of the human spirit that is being developed and nurtured in that time? Is our job allowing us to develop the qualities of right aspiration and right right action and right speech? Is it allowing me to feel connected? And sometimes I think we miss that sense of connectedness in ways that we bypass. When we're working in a concerted service or industry, and it doesn't have to be white collar or blue collar job, be any job, there's a kind of a teamwork that's developing. If it's producing something that's useful and non-harmful, and all of it meets all the other criteria, then and people feel often don't miss the point that there's a kind of a there's a teamwork and a coordination. And a coordinating activity that goes on is being a part of a whole that's producing something. And we lose that. We just see our little role, we just see our little problems, and we miss the greater sense of how this harmony, all of the pieces are needed to produce that product. In hospice care, we have what's called the interdisciplinary team. And the interdisciplinary team is an essential component of hospice care. It's all the different disciplines. Everyone sits around that table. And we talk about the patient from the vantage point of five, six different disciplines, including the volunteer, the home health aide, the chaplain, the medical social worker, the nurse, the physician. All voices are equally heard. If one voice is, lost in some struggle or the voice becomes distorted and the whole picture is distorted. I use that as an example of hospice care but that coordination of activity and tone and input is available no matter what job we do because we're always connected. We're always connecting. And to think just in terms of my own achievement, to think in terms of just my own product, my own role in it, is to miss perhaps the greater service that what your job is involved in. The greater coordination, the greater sense of whole. This is another way to connect with right view. Another way to look at right view besides just what I'm getting out of the job. And when you have a team that works like that, then it really becomes obvious when there's a dysfunctional part. And often that dysfunctional part is because of some selfish attitude that has developed in relationship to that person's job. There are really four functions of work once we are within work, a work environment that... Is again harmonious with life. It gives a person a chance to utilize and develop his or her skills to participate in a, in a creative way, hopefully. Hopefully there's an opportunity to, to do something creative in our work or to think creatively or to bring a new perspective to what you're doing. To enable us to overcome our inborn eh, egocentricity by joining the others in a common task. And that's what I was just explaining. An opportunity to create something that's greater than what any single person could produce. To bring forth the goods and services needed by all of us for a decent existence. That's a noble, those are noble things. (laughs) work also gives us a chance to see our psychological responses to success and failure. And so within all of that we can see how we lose ourselves time and time again into wrong view. Time and time again our aspirations are missed. And that's okay. It's not a fault. No blame. Because blaming is wrong view. When you turn it back in on yourself we've missed the point of the whole thing but rather to say okay, let's see here let me look again let me reinstate some attention here, some awareness some care and concern to the world to come back in come back into it the raft continues you're either on the raft or not you just jump on the thing get back on it let us not end up regretting a third of our life. But to use that third as a summation of what we care most about. Our self-growth, producing and allowing life to be seen as a whole and offering a service or a good to that whole in align with what we care about and aligned with the passions of how we feel so that our interests are coming out and are igniting so that we stay engaged in life.